Welcome to Your Partner in Success Radio, a program that values the potential of knowledge, collaboration, and growth. The show is hosted by Denise Griffiths, who is known as an intensely curious nerd in stilettos. Each Wednesday, she is joined by co-host Ben Gay III, a renowned figure in the sales world. Ben is recognized for introducing The Closers, one of the most popular and powerful sales training materials ever produced. Having been mentored by Dr. Napoleon Hill himself, Ben has gained a wealth of knowledge in sales and life. Throughout the show, Denise and Ben delve into the world of sales, entrepreneurship, and success, exploring Ben's vast experience from guiding and mentoring countless professionals to achieve unparalleled success in their careers. Together, they offer unmatched guidance to listeners seeking success in their professional endeavors. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another exciting episode of the Closers Inner Circle podcast hosted by Denise Griffiths and Ben Gay III on your Partner in Success Radio. Now, Ben joins me each Wednesday where we discuss sales mastery and honestly, anything that crosses our minds. It can get kind of fun as we chat and we study Ben's famous sales books, The Closers. And if you don't have The Closers, we'll talk about that in just a little bit. But today, Ben and I are working from The Closers Part 2, page 49, Do You Own One?, it's an interesting title. And last week we covered page 59, which was the real objection is you, another interesting title. So be sure to download and listen to these chats that we're having on your part in success radio or wherever you consume your favorite podcasts. And I just built a brand new website and I'm so proud of it. It's so party. So please check it out. Your partner in success radio.com. So our topic today is why genuine product ownership is the key to effective sailing, selling and boosting your sales strategy with authentic buy-in, which makes sense, you know, what the topic is all about. So as a salesperson, or the title rather, I'm sorry, as a salesperson, cultivating a genuine connection with the product or service you're promoting is paramount. The essence of successful selling goes way beyond mere transactional exchanges. It hinges on a profound understanding and appreciation for what you offer. It's not just about pushing a product. It's about embodying its values. That's difficult for some of us to do. We're like, oh, well, yeah, this is what I think it's worth, but I don't know if they'll buy it at that. We talked about that last week. Go back and listen to that. But to effectively convey the merits of what you're selling, you must, according to Ben and his daddy in this in this chapter, you must be able to effectively convey the merits of it. You must authentically own it, use it, and appreciate it. And if you do that, if you really do buy into it, if you really do own it, your conviction becomes contagious and that creates a sense of trust and reliability for your customers. This internal buy-in, a personal endorsement of the product, <clears throat> excuse me, is a compelling force that resonates with clients. So when you're genuinely invested, your enthusiasm is palpable, palpable. Say it for me, Ben. Palpable. I can't say it. <laughs> Y'all know what I mean. And potential buyers can sense the authenticity. So anyway, Ben, good morning. Welcome back to your partner in Success Radio, the Inner Circle, the Closers Inner Circle podcast. It's Wednesday. It's Wednesday. I always look forward to Wednesday. Me too. Uh, and I'm, it's a pleasure to be with you again, to hear your soft, dulcet voice. 
uh, all the men listening, uh, be honest. Is that voice something or what? Oh, jeez. And you know I hate to hear my own voice. This is true. I will accidentally hear myself every once in a while, and I just kind of do a, what we call in the South a deep, a whole body frisson, which means that I'm <laughs> shuddering because I keep waiting to hear, happy birthday, Mr. President. I think there, there is, Yeah, there is a little bit of that in it. Oh, it's horrible. It's, and I'm not a buxom blonde. So if anybody wants to know, I'm not. <laughs> For you younger listeners, uh, she's referring to Marilyn Monroe singing happy birthday to President Kennedy, like they were having some sort of private session. <laughs> but it was in front of what, 5,000 people and millions of people on television. Right. And his wife. It was embarrassing. And, and his wife. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Shouldn't have happened. <laughs> but, but anyway, you um, we've got a lot to cover, and I know you've got only 45 minutes to spend with me today. So where would you like to start? Well, let's do the, uh, the, the subject matter. Sometimes we get to chatting and don't get back with adequately to what we were supposed to talk about. This is on page 49 of The Closers Part 2. And as Denise already told you, it's called Do You Own One? And this is a lesson I learned without knowing it. A lot of lessons you learn, and then later on you find out the significance of them. When we moved from Massachusetts to Apple Valley, California in 1948, when I was six, and uh, Apple, we were the first non-Native Americans to live there full-time. The sales staff was starting to show up, but as far as actually living there, we were the first ones, and uh, it's grown on, gone on to when I wrote The Closers Part 2, I had talked to the mayor. I'm sure it's bigger than this now, but there are now 58,740 people living there when I wrote The Closers Part 2, including back then Roy Rogers, the king of the cowboys, and his wife, Dale Evans. My uh, father sold them their first ranch, maybe the second one, too, but I know he sold them the first ranch. So my little claim to fame was uh, that I people say, have you met Roy Rogers? And I would say, oh, of course, he had to come to our house because we didn't have an office yet, come to our house to sign the papers to buy his ranch. And one day I've told that story hundreds of times. Uh, and I even said he wasn't dressed like Roy Rogers, though he had on deck shoes and a, a yachting cap because his real love beyond cowboy ship was racing outboard motorboats. And so he only, yeah, he only dressed as old Roy, he used to call it, when he went to the museum and when he was putting, you know, when he was supposed to be Roy Rogers, king of the cowboys. So anyway, I'm telling the stories. I said I had it word for word. I'd told it hundreds of times. And my mother happened to be in the room, wherever it was. And she said in a loud voice, you never met Roy Rogers. Oh, mom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. First of all, if you're going to break some heartbreaking uh, thing to me, do it in private, not in front of several hundred people would be appreciated. But I said, of course I did. He came to the house and, and signed papers and so on. She said, that's exactly the way it happened. But you were at school. Oh, she <laughs> so might I, as well have told you right then and there, there was no Santa Claus. Exactly. In fact, oh. that, that would have been better. 
I was starting to figure out Santa Claus, but not Roy Rogers, for goodness sake. So uh, I've hated school buses ever since and uh, <laughs> am crushed that I actually <laughs> never met Roy Rogers. I've been to the Roy Rogers Museum. It's not no longer in Apple Valley. Yeah, well, they closed it down. Yeah, moved it to Victorville. Then they moved it to Branson, Missouri. And recently I heard it went out of business. I guess there's not enough of us left who know who Roy Rogers is, but he was really something. When people say, What'd you want, what did you want to be when you grew up? And all my friends are saying doctors, pilots, whatever. And I said, Roy Rogers. That, that was my goal. Aww. Cute story. He's with uh, some people. I forget who they were, but somebody who actually met him <laughs> at his condominium on the golf course. That's something else I don't like to have in my mind. He had a ranch, but he spent most of his time at a condominium on the Apple Valley Country Club golf course because he liked to play golf. And uh, he was in his golfing outfit. And then he looked at his watch. He said, sorry. And he went down the hall. Apparently, the bedroom was back there. And he came back out as Roy Rogers. And he said, I've got to go over to the museum and be old Roy. Aww. He had a name for it. I've got to be old Roy. And uh, so he did. Apparently a very, very nice man. And I could tell you how nice he was personally if my mother had kept her big fat mouth shut and let me live in my little fantasy world. And see, I was fully prepared. I wrote it down. Did you get to meet Trigger until your mom broke my heart? <laughs> no, but I did spend the night in a uh, huge carport owned by a friend of mine's family with the Budweiser Clydesdales. Oh, I love them. Yeah, they came to Murfreesboro, Tennessee, where this family owned the Budweiser distributorship. And apparently there weren't a lot of stables available. So they unloaded them in his backyard in this big quadruple carport. And I slept right around them. I mean, not, not dangerously close, but they were gentle giants, huge horses. With enormous feet, I thought if if one of these steps on me, I'm gone. So I met the Clydesdales, at least that traveling group of them. There are several, and uh, but never Trigger and never Buttermilk, uh, Dale's horse. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I read about her. Yeah, she was uh, she was abroad again. I never met her, <laughs> but. Uh, uh, she was really abroad, a good Christian, adopted kids, wrote books, couldn't have been a nicer person. But behind the scenes, she had sort of a body side. Uh, Trigger, as you know, and later Buttermilk were mounted in the Roy Rogers Museum. I know. Taxi, that, taxidermied. I, I saw that and I just went, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. I grew my grandparents were farmers and hunters, and there were deer heads all over their farmhouse, and I still just shudder. Like, oh my God. My grandfather said, Do you want to touch one? I said, No. Oh, no. <laughs> In fact, I not... said something else, no. And then I ran out and got on top of a tractor and hid. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm not a big fan of stuffed anything. And I understand somebody's got to shoot them and hunt them and keep them oh, thinned out, but not me. Well, a, they ate them. I mean, they weren't just doing it for fun of it. That oh, was yeah. food, but still, you couldn't have let them, you know, rest in peace. You had to keep their head. <laughs> just <laughs> icky. 
Uh, back to Dale being uh, a little body. She was asked one time by somebody, she's taken on a tour of the Roy Rogers Museum and they come to Buttermilk and uh, uh, Trigger. And they said, when you die, would you like to be uh, stuffed and mounted also? And she said, yes, but not necessarily in that order. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> Dale Evans, the Christian. Yeah. Listen, a, a body woman can be hysterically oh, funny. Yeah, because yeah. so. you know, never know what's going to come out. No, you never do. You never do. Well, I, I don't even know where to go now. You didn't. Well, we'll I'm do a little. On, we'll do I'm mad at your mom right now. Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> a little, little on the Apple Valley thing. Do you own one? The concept yeah. was, and this is when I first learned it again without knowing it until years later. My father uh, and mother bought this house and uh, Lowell Thomas, an old radio guy, owned it first, but he never moved into it. So how that worked, I don't know. It looked like Apple Valley in 1948 looked like where Apollo 11 landed on the moon. Rather desolate, flat, dusty, and so on. And now, I've been back a couple of times, beautiful place. People who moved there to get away from hay fever and all now have brought the hay fever with them because they brought their favorite plants and the grass from home. And now it looks you know, like an oasis instead of a desert if it's a developed area or a developed lot. So my father had to figure out a way to sell this, and he only had one thing to work with, an office that was being built and the house we had. So he would drive around showing them where the turkey farm was going to go. The Jeff Stoddard turkey farm is the largest in the world, and the Jeff Stoddard trout farm, again, the largest in the world. I'm assuming they're still there. <clears throat> and after you showed the turkey farm and the trout farm, Everything else was a dream that was coming. The golf course was under construction and and so on. So he would take them by the house and he would tell my mother roughly when he was coming by. He knew how long the tour lasted. And I guess he called her as he left the office. So when they went by the uh, house, mother was conveniently in the front yard trimming a bush or something. He'd honk. She'd wave with a dish rag and or a towel or something. And they would go on their way. His point being, I live here. And it's important you understand, I live here. This is where I've decided to live and so on. And it was an important part of the tour. Years later, like 20 years later or so, I flew in there. I wanted to show my uh, wife what Apple Valley looked like then and now. And uh, so we took the Learjet and flew into Apple Valley. And uh, the uh, owner of the place, Newt Bass, was gracious. And we remember your dad so fondly and blah, blah, blah. And he said, would you like to see it as it is today? And I said, I sure would. So he said, I'll have one of the salesmen take you on the tour. We get in his car and word for word, what my father had written in 1948, he did the script. Now, granted, there were new things in the script because there were new things there. But towards the end of it, I whispered in my wife's ear. I keep saying my wife instead of Judy because it was my first wife who since passed away, Marsha. I whispered in Marsha's ear, 
were coming were coming to his house. I just knew that was still part of it. And we turned down this residential street and he honks and his wife is out in the front. And she waves her dish towel. He said, that's where I live. Oh. And, I, and I said, my father would be very proud of you. Very. I think that's the first time he realized who I was or who I might be or really? whatever. And I said, yeah. And I said, uh, he would be happy to know you've given the script exactly as he wrote it in 1948. And uh, so he was very pleased with that. And I, I said, do, do all salespeople go by the house and have their wife w wave at him if she's in town or their husband, as the case may be? He said, unless they want to get fired. Well, you and I have talked about scripts before. We talked about that early on in our foray into podcast um, hosting with me. And you're right. I mean, I write scripts for my podcast. I have to because I have a squirrel brain. I don't know what's going to come out of my mouth next. And even then, I'm looking at that going, really? That's what I'm going to say. So, yeah. And for those who are listening, go back and, and find those early on. In fact, I'll find it and, and uh, repost them. But scripts are important. And I also made a note here. You talked about, you know, getting over there in the Learjet. Is this the same Learjet that Dr. Napoleon Hill liked to ride in? Yes. I figured. Uh, he would make up stories as to why he had to come out. So I would send the Learjet to get him. He just loved, uh, I don't know why, because it was uncomfortable inside. I was always thrilled when it was out of town doing something else and I could ride first class to New York instead of crouched up in the Learjet. It was one of the early, early models, the L the Learjet 23, I think it was. And uh, it was one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, sat seven uh, grand total, including the couch in the back, which sat three. So it was not, uh, it didn't have a bathroom. It had a. Uh, oh, no. Uh, see, that just did it for me. No, yeah. no, no. Well, the good news is uh, a Learjet in those days, most corporate jets couldn't fly across the country. They had to land about halfway across. So you only had about a three hour run. You could. You could plan your your uh, going to the bathroom duties accordingly. When you got on board, the first thing you saw dead in front of you before you turned back to the seating area or left to the cockpit was a look like a, a stool. It had a padded seat, just like the rest of the plane, padded brown leather seat. But what it was was the toilet, but it was sitting in the entrance way within view of all the other seats. And uh, it, but it did have a curtain you could pull around it, I guess. To my knowledge, in all the years we had that that plane, it was never the toilet was never used. It was just another another place to put a bag. Yeah, it was Learjets in those days, the smaller one, were one of those things that's sexy to look at from the outside, miserable inside. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, like no refrigerator, no galley. You could bring help if you wanted, but that took up one of the seven seats. So uh, there wasn't much help on board. But from the outside, it looked good. It was a sexy plane. We landed in the Tri-City area, Kingsport, Tennessee, and the two other little towns right around it, but they call it the Tri-City area. And our distributors knew we were coming. It was a planned meeting and arrival. When we landed, and this is in oh, late 60s, 
there were more people at the airport to look at the Learjet than lived in the three towns. Oh, <laughs> how did they know y'all were coming? Yeah. <laughs> the distributors told them they just oh. made it part of the event. Marketing. It's yeah. always marketing. Yeah. But, well, uh, I want he, Dr. Ahead. Hill loved that Learjet. I think he liked this prestige of getting on and getting off. And of course they, the uh, pilot, Art Stagg, and whoever his co-pilot was that day, treated him like royalty. I said, this is a special guy. Give him even better treatment than he would give me or Bill Patrick, the owner of the company. And apparently they did because the slightest excuse, he said, can I can I take the Lear? <laughs> and I can hear him saying that. And I want to point out, there's an awful lot of talk. There's a lot of talk going on right now about Dr. Napoleon Hill, mm -hmm. Russell Brunson, and several other people who have gotten a hold of uh, some unpublished manuscripts, apparently. But I want to point out that you had unparalleled, you know, contact with Dr. Napoleon Hill. He was your mentor. Chances yeah. are you know a whole heck of a lot more about him than anybody else in the world right now. Uh, of his, he didn't have many mentees because he didn't like doing it. Uh, Bill Patrick, the first, I had to pay him the second, third year. But the first year, uh, Bill Patrick paid him $50,000 to be my friend. That's in 1967 dollars. So it's about a half a million. I may have told you before, but it always reminds me of Rodney Dangerfield, the old comedian who used to say that the family had to tie a pork chop around his neck so that the dog would play with him. Aww. Well, Dr. Hill had to have a $50,000 check tied around my neck so he'd be my friend. But we became uh, close buddies in the office. My desk was a big conference table. His was the his seat was the last one on my left at the end of the table. And unless the room was jammed and he wasn't in town, which was frequently, he only came out, you know, once a month or twice a month and so on. Uh, no one sat in that chair. And up at our house, there was the Dr. Hill bedroom. And unless we were jammed up with family, that, that was always the last bedroom filled because it was his personal uh, bedroom, complete with a typewriter I bought him because uh, he was, I noticed him writing longhand, but I knew he had a typewriter because he mentioned it and some of the drafts of various things I had seen were all typed. So I got him uh, a typewriter for the bedroom at the house. I don't remember him using one at the office, but maybe he did. And uh, one of the things with all the books he wrote that amazed me was he was not a fast typist. Uh, into the night, I would hear. I hope you could hear that, but he was... No, I didn't. Do it he, again. He, uh, he reminded me of a bad secretary. Uh, so he would have loved today where you could just talk into a microphone and have it transcribed. But he, he labored over the stuff he wrote. And the books, uh, I'm not referring to what uh, the guy you just mentioned, Russell, somebody uh, bought and so on, because I don't know. But... Uh, when I was working with him, we had lots of money, a publishing company, et cetera. And I said to him numerous times, you know, we'll publish anything. You know, he's sitting there writing something. I said, we'll publish anything you want to do. He said, well, I'm pretty much done. 
And he said, when you uh, write Think and Grow Rich, it's hard to top. He was like Earl Nightingale, who, although he continued recording things, basically he said when he wrote and recorded The Stranger's Secret, he was done. He said, I can't top it. That's as good as it gets. And that was the way Dr. Hill uh, talked about Think and Grow Rich and the law of success, but he admitted hardly anybody ever read it because it was too much two or three volumes the size of the New York phone book. And he said, most people have never read it. He even said about thinking Grow Rich one day, we walked into our living room, I think the first time he was at the house, and my wife had laid out on the coffee table a copy of Thinking Grow Rich, angled so that when you walk down the hall and into the living room, that it was directly in your eyesight lined up perfectly. It was sort of embarrassing because it was pandering at its best it's cute yeah it's and sweet. i said i said first of all i wanted to say to marcia stop it <laughs> but it was too late but i said to dr hill oh look a copy of thinking we're rich like we sat around the coffee table and read it as a family every night and uh, he i said how does it feel to have written one of the best-selling books in the world they used to advertise it as second only to the bible I don't know if that was true then, and I don't think it's true today, but nevertheless, it was a huge seller. They think over 100 million copies. And uh, he said, best-selling, least read. And over the years, he would tell me stories of going into people's offices, and they too would have their copy out on the desk. But when he picked it up, the spine had never been cracked. Right. And uh, so it's one of those books that everybody talks about, very few people read. And apparently he left behind a magic desk because he's been dead uh, 53 years. And they're forever discovering brand new manuscripts that nobody knew about. So I've wondered about that. I have to be very frank with you about that. I'm thinking, how can these just be kind of popping up? I'm sure there's a story. And I'm going to stay in touch with the story and find out what it is. But I'm a little suspicious. But then that's my nature. So, yeah. you know, don't take it any other way. There's a word I have trouble pronouncing. I have it written and stuck on my computer, complete with accent marks. It's uh, apocryphal, mm-hmm. as, as in like he would have written. Yeah. Because uh, yeah. I see things all the time using words that he allegedly wrote that weren't used in those days and he never would have used them. I saw one the other day, uh, 98% of people don't do something or whatever, and therefore they're losers. They would not have said that. Yeah. A, it wasn't in general use and B, he wouldn't have said it. No. So apocryphal, I think covers a whole lot of stuff. There may be somebody, that they put makeup on every morning to look like Dr. Hill and his job is to sit and write. But uh, I suspect that a lot of that stuff is true to the spirit of Dr. Hill. But uh, when he had an opportunity to publish it all, my offer was without limits. If you wrote it and you want it published, we'll do it and distribute it through our million person sales organization. It was not a which is how he came back to life. He wrote Thinking Grow Rich and it had a little run, was a bestseller back in the days when bestseller actually meant bestseller, not in this category from Thursday at three o'clock to four o'clock. A lot of the bestsellers you see today uh, with 12 books 
or I saw one the other day was a bestseller and hadn't been printed yet, which is sort of amazing. But uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> back when things really were you sound suspicious. Yeah, back I when don't things know why. back when things were counted by the number you sold through bookstores and reported back to the publisher and so on. It was a bestseller when it first came out, and it had its little run. And he and the book had gone into obscurity. Now, here's a small world thing. I bought a company called the Personnel Institute. Had a little psychological study, motivational program built into it that I thought was pretty neat. So I bought the whole company and uh, began publishing uh, it. And then the guy I bought it from showed up one day for some reason. And he said, uh, he said, I understand you have a close relationship with Dr. Napoleon Hill. And I said, yeah. He said, well, you can thank me. And I thought, that's odd. They were about the same age, but I didn't have any idea what he was talking about. Turns out, Morris Pickus, a business consultant, was calling on W. Clement Stone of Combined Insurance, Clem Stone, as his friends called him, and he'd never met him. So he did what salespeople used to do in those days. If it was a promising, potentially big account, he wanted to take him a gift, like a hostess gift, like a bottle of wine if you're having dinner somewhere. So he went into a bookstore and he saw Think and Grow Rich sitting there and he'd heard about it, but he'd never read it. So I think he bought two copies, one for him and one for the hostess gift. And he took it to Clem. When he walked in, he said, this is a hot book or whatever, and had been a hot book. And I hear it's very good. I got one, too. Clem said, thank you very much. And that was, as far as Morris was concerned, that was the end of it. Well, it turned out Clem Stone actually read it, loved it, uh, recommended it for all his people. In fact, then he made it mandatory for all of his he people. Did. I remember reading about that. You know, and which at any given time was over a million people in combined insurance in the United States and Canada, I guess. And uh, so that brought it back from the dead. Then he tracked down Napoleon Hill and became his manager and partner. Oh, I, really? I did not know that. Yeah. That's Okay, keep going. But, See, I'm writing this down. Well, I think he said a year or two, and I said, uh, why did it end? He said, well, as you know, because Clem knew that I had worked with Dr. Hill, he could be a little cranky and hard to deal with. So we parted it on good terms, but the, the partnership and the managership lasted a year or two. And he said, I'm grateful for that time I spent with him, but it was enough. <laughs> so Aww. that's how Dr. Hill came back into favor and how my boss, William Penn Patrick, the owner of Holiday Magic Cosmetics, somehow came in contact with him and impressed him. So Dr. Hill wrote in, in one of his books that Bill Patrick, and he named the others, was one of the 10 greatest or five greatest living Americans or something like that. And, uh, he came out to give Bill an award, a plaque signifying it and a signed copy of the book that said it. And it was during that visit that Bill Patrick was struck by the idea that maybe it'd be a good idea to have this 25-year-old president of his company uh, have a little older, wiser 
non-employer to confide in. And so on the way down the hall, leaving the building, he talked Dr. Hill into taking me. Of course, for $50,000, it probably wasn't hard to talk him into it, but talked him into being my mentor, knocked on my door, brought him in, introduced him, said he was my new coach or friend or whatever term we used in those days. And that's how our relationship started. And frankly, it was a little prickly in the beginning. The last thing I needed was an 84-year-old man hanging around my office. When you were 25 years old, you knew everything. Already, I knew everything. Right. In fact, I came into knowing everything when I was about 12. So by by 25, I was seasoned. (laughs) I was telling our our mutual friend, Tammy Mitchell, the other day, I said, you know, once we all hit 25, we really ought to be calling our parents daily and apologizing for anything, (laughs) everything, just for breathing. We were so awful. I mean, most kids are sociopaths. They're just born that way. They might outgrow it later on in life. But until you're, you know, in your 20s or maybe early 30s, you're just unbearable i think i was we got a christmas card from our son's Gigi's biological son but i've raised him so he's mine uh named tony antonio uh last christmas or the christmas before it's scotch taped up on a file cabinet in the office and uh, it's from him spontaneous unexpected and he did what you're talking about he hit 30 i think at the time and uh, he apologized for being a uh, ends with whole. Uh, <laughs> thanks just thanks just for, for not giving up on him, taking him back in. And he said something like, "It was hard to raise somebody who knew everything." It's <laughs> <That's> impossible. <laughs> I, I still, my mom's been gone a couple of years, and every once in a while, I'll glance up at a ceiling fan that I happen to be under. Go, sorry, mom. <laughs> Because something will hit me and, oh, geez. Yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, those memories are from a long time ago when I really was more insufferable than I am now. But, oh, my, I just don't know why she didn't hit me with a car every once in a while. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, I'm with you. My my father one time gave me a spanking. I, I always say a beating, but he never beat me. But I did get spanked uh, with a belt. My mother used to spank me with a hairbrush but never remembered to take off my Levi's. So that was sort of an amusing experience. (laughs) One time I looked around and smiled while she was whacking me with a hairbrush. And uh, now we know why she outed you. Now (laughs) she was waiting for the moment. Eventually he's going to tell the Roy Roy, (laughs) Rogers story. You earned that. (laughs) Sorry, Ben. Five o'clock came. I heard the car pull into the, front of the house and go down the driveway and back under the house and uh it was my father coming home and then I heard him coming up the cellar steps and into the kitchen then I heard murmuring and then I heard him say really this was the hours after I laughed at her for spanking me Uh and and, uh, he came into my bedroom and said I understand that you think uh, getting a spanking is fun and actually funny. And I said, no, no, not really, as he's taking off his belt. And uh, so he gave me a a proper spanking, enough where I never laughed at my mother again. I don't think for anything, but certainly not for spanking. 
And he goes out, and as he's heading down the hallway, he goes past my sister's bedroom, and she's in there crying. I guess the theory being some sympathy for her brother, but mainly in this rage he's in, she's going to be next. And, she told and you know, me, if you, if she's going one, two, three, you're just going down the line like piano keys. You don't know yeah. who's next. <laughs> so he goes in, and years later, she told me he sat down on the bed, rubbed her shoulders, and said, "Jane, you have to understand, we're not dealing with a normal person." Oh. <laughs> Somebody oh. told me once that was an insult. I sort of I thought it was a compliment. <laughs> See, I would take it that way as well. My grandmother, we would get shipped off to go spend the, literally the summers with my my grandparents. And if we were bad, and I'm going to say we, but I really mean my brothers because, you know, they're always bad. Right. She would say, all right, y'all, go down to the garden. We'd have to go down this set of stairs and go down into the garden. And she'd bring me a switch from the willow tree. Holy geez. And then we had to peel it. That was a mean woman. I didn't care if I got smacked. It was just thinking about it. It's like, oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. To this day, if I see a willow tree, I still just go, oh geez. <laughs> I'll be good. I'll behave. I promise. Don't hit me again. Yeah. She never really did. It was just the it the psychology. It was vicious. It really was. But, you know, she would make us wait. And, you know, when your grandfather gets home, he's going to take that switch. And oh, and he wouldn't. He was much nicer than she was. But <laughs> we were all we were all terrified of that switch. I can't even actually remember getting smacked. She might have gotten me at the back of the legs one time, you know, just like kind yeah. of a tap. But bare legs, peeled switch, out. Even if it's not really out, it's just the psychology of it. I was never hit with a switch, but I had friends who had to go get theirs, you know, pick it off the tree and bring it back and and so on. So I, my theory was, well, at least I'm only being hit with a hairbrush with thick Levi's on. So, And, and my mother was small. She was like 5'2", and uh, not, not a powerhouse physically. But uh, he, my father broke me of... Uh, of laughing at her spanking technique, I assure you. Oh, I bet. And you know, we were thinking my we were telling my mom about it and she said, Well, you know, maybe they're just trying to, you know, weeping willows kind of brush the ground. Maybe that's just their way of, you know, clearing the ground. I said, Mom, we're off tall. She said, Oh yeah. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> so we cleared them up pretty high. You could see the trunk after a while because we were always in trouble. Always. My brothers were always in trouble. I was the good one. It I can see that because yeah, they're, that they're not Gigi. here to argue with me anymore. That was Gigi and her brothers. They were nice people, but hellraisers in their youth. And Gigi was almost angelic and by comparison, really angelic. So uh, she was ratting out one of her brothers one day and to her mother about driving too fast. And the car went up on two wheels and so on. And she was 10, I'm guessing. And, uh, she looks at her mother, who's not looking at her. She's he's she's looking over Gigi, and Gigi said, "He's standing behind me, isn't he?" Why well, yes. <laughs> And her mother said, I'm, "I'm sorry to tell you, but he is." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you're on your own. They made the mistake of telling Gigi, "Don't tell mother," which means wow. that gave that gave her the idea to get out of the car, run, find her mother, and rat him out. <laughs> 
Well, yeah. We had, we always did that in our family. We would call it the tin can, you know, you'd string a tin cans together and you all gossip. You can be in different rooms. Mm-hmm. Yep. You had the tin can, what do you call it? Um, switchboard. Yeah. I mean, it, it was crazy. It was really crazy. But I wanted to go back a little bit to you use the word apocryphal. That happens to you as well. And one of them being, and we see this all the time, know you like you trust you. And that started out with you, I believe. Yes. Uh, I said, and then thanks to Ron Anspech, added to it a few years ago. It started out with people like to do business with or buy from people they know, like, and trust. And then talking to Ron one day, uh, he helped me add a phrase to it. So now the way I quote it is, people buy from people they know, like, trust, and with whom they feel safe. And I think that really magnifies the power of the basic phrase. But yeah, I was using that since the mid-60s. I think I came up with it. I'd never heard it anywhere else that I'm consciously aware of. But I may have heard it from somebody else and forgot that. Uh, one who, uh, Bob Berg, I think was his name, a sales trainer. Yeah. Bob Berg, I see, I saw him the other day, and I was thinking exactly of Bob Berg. He's an author. He wrote um, The Go-Givers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he, he probably made it more popular than I did. I was not very good at getting credit for quotes because I was talking all that. I was giving 300 plus, 300 plus speeches a year without notes and firing off the top of my head and so on. So I frequently hear things said back that I thought, that was mine but I didn't write it down. And there was a guy named Dr. Luther Brock, the letter doctor, who used to send around like comedy writers, gag writers, send around gag sheets to comedians, pick what you want and pay for what you take. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you uh, tell me about him. Yeah, Luther Brock used to send around. And I think I was first on the list of getting the, the sheet, but maybe everybody thought they were first. But several of the most popular phrases that are quoted on a regular basis. So there's lots of that going around. But I hear, you know, the Earl Nightingale's The Strangest Secret, You Become What You Think About. That's in the Bible. Not not in those exact words, but it's in the Bible. So uh, it, it, we've all been stolen from, and that's fine. I'm glad the word's out there. Let me give you, because I, I told you I got to run. You got to run, uh, yeah. Uh, let me give you one other example of, of uh, do you own one? Uh, two, one, my sister-in-law was trying to sell us an Electrolux vacuum cleaner one day, which is probably the world's best demonstration product. You can vacuum your house for two hours before the Electrolux person shows up. But with that water filter, by the time they're through, you feel like a pig for what they got out of your carpet that you just vacuumed. It's a great product. So I said to her, we didn't need a vacuum cleaner, but it was my sister-in-law and my wife's looking at me, uh, you know, come on. And finally, I said to her, Liz, here's the deal. If you have bought one of these and have it at home, she lived about a block away, and we'll go over and look at it. If there's one in your closet, I'll buy. And she said, sure. And then when we got to our front door, she stopped and she said, I use it occasionally, but I use the demo model that I just used here. So she didn't even own one. 
And uh, that gave me an excuse, I think, to say, because we don't have an electric lux. I think that gave me an excuse to get out of the purchase. But it was because she didn't own one. And then one last quick one, I was down in Cabo San Lucas doing a uh, sales training for one of the timeshare organizations. I'll leave them nameless because the story I'm going to tell you is sort of cute. I asked them half an hour into the presentation, I asked them, how many of you guys and gals that were a mix, uh, how many of you own a timeshare anywhere but here? How many of you own a timeshare? Not a hand in the room went up. So they're selling timeshares for a good deal of money to people, and they don't believe in the product enough. And it wasn't like they got to stay there for free uh, themselves. They either had a timeshare or they didn't stay there. And uh, so I said, really? And and you're able to look them dead in the eye and ask them to buy? And, and everybody went, you know, yes. And I said, okay, well, here's the deal. We'll start again. I'm making up times, but let's say it was 1130. We'll start back here again at 1230. And you to, to be admitted to the room, you must bring with you your brand new membership card for having bought a timeshare here. Now, I don't care if it's on the $50 down, $50 a month, um, never, never payment plan, or you pay full price. I think it was about $20,000 then, uh, or, or what, I don't care how you do it, but to get in this room, you must show me your membership card that you, the, the one you're going to show to your prospects that you and your family are members. You're dismissed. And uh, later the sales manager said to me, what did you do with the owner of somebody? I don't know who it was said to me, what did you do? And I said, well, I just told him they had to have a timeshare. He said, we've never sold that many in a day ever. Certainly not in a group presentation. They sold, I'm quoting from memory, 53 timeshares because I caught them not owning one. It's a powerful booster when you just throw it casually into your conversation. When I'm using mine, or I remember when I got mine, or whatever, my wife loves it, or my husband can't live without it, or whatever. It's a crucial, crucial thing. And on it that is. profound point, you got to go. No. And you go ahead, Ben, and I'll finish this up. I'll talk with you next week. All right, Denise. But love you, kiddo. Love you too. Tell Gigi hi for me. Bye. Okay, so I'm going to go back to the closers part two, page 49. And this is what really started the whole conversation today. This is the second paragraph in the the opening of do you own one? And it's important. It's what Ben's talking about. He's talking about his dad. You know, his, we was talking about him earlier when they were selling just ground. There was nothing there. And he said the first thing his dad did was to purchase a home. Not you know, one of the very first, which we discussed. And the second thing he did was to make it a requirement, important, a requirement that all of the salespeople he employed owned at least a building lot and that they paid the normal full price for it. And in fact, that was his first real qualifier. If you didn't believe in the dream enough to live there, he didn't want you selling others on the idea. And Ben just expressed that beautifully. So I will go ahead and say goodbye to everybody and encourage you to go back, go to your partner in Success Radio, go to Apple. You can find us anywhere. Honestly, you can't throw a stick on the internet without hitting your partner in Success Radio. And go from the beginning. I'm not sure how many months we've been doing this now because it's just so much fun. I don't even count anymore. But 
go back and start listening to all of the podcasts that I've done with Ben. They're amazing. Lots of, of valuable insights. And he shares them here on the Closers Inner Circle podcast each week. And if you go and you get his books, the Closers, you can get them on eBay. Normally, he would be able to rattle out the ad, the address, but I can't. But it is in the show notes. And, you know, get these books, make them part of your entrepreneurial library and watch your business flourish in competitive markets. Oh, and listen, when you get a chance as well, don't forget to email Ben or catch up with him on LinkedIn or Facebook and ask him about his mentoring program. This was an idea that was born from his mentorship with Dr. Napoleon Hill. And it's actually something that they were going to do themselves together and has been so pithily says, P-I-T-H-Y, pithily says, Dr. Hill went and died on him. So that kind of languished for a long time. He just didn't feel like he wanted to do it without Napoleon Hill, but he is now. So thank you everybody for being with us here today. And I look forward to seeing you next week.